welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today I talked to Atlanta Grant, an Iroquois woman with mixed Huron-Wendat and German ancestry, originally from the traditional territories of the Misagas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Ojibwe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. She's a present guest on the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Swale-Tooth peoples. Atlanta is a master's candidate at the University of British Columbia in the Institute of Resources, Environment, and Sustainability. Her research focuses on indigenous food systems, indigenous food sovereignty, decolonized research methodologies, cultural preservation, and cross-cultural collaborations. Atlanta's thesis focuses on indigenous food cycling practices, the reinstatement of indigenous natural law operating in opposition to the settler colonial industrial food systems production of food waste. Food cycling contains the processes of intentional honor and intentional repurpose that surround the consumption of animals and plants, how they form indigenous law and other indigenous biocultural heritage practices and teachings. Her professional work focuses on what safe, decolonized, collaborative spaces should look like within environmental movements in the climate change sector between non-indigenous and indigenous peoples, focusing on collaboration that is rooted within indigenous customs, protocols, and traditions in ways that avoid the overburdening of indigenous knowledge systems, inappropriate integrations of indigenous knowledge into Western systems, and the pan-indigenizing of indigenous voices surrounding climate movements. Atlanta, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's dive in. Tell me about yourself, how you grew up, and what sparked your interest in studying environment and sustainability. Yeah, I grew up uh, on Robson Huron Treaty territory, which is um, northern Ontario in so-called Sudbury. Um, I was born and raised there and then kind of slowly made my way to Queensville, Ontario, which is kind of a mix of kind of Huron, um, Haudenosaunee, Wendat uh, peoples. They're actually the first peoples of the Williams Treaty First Nations. And kind of just in that growing up of childhood, I always was super wildly aware of just my natural environment. Sudbury is very beautiful. And my grandparents' house was Um, on the front of about 20 acres of blueberry bushes and wild strawberry bushes and ponds with beavers in it. It was really hard as a child not to just be in absolute awe of everything. I think when I grew up and I went to the University of Toronto and then my kind of more rural, outdoorsy um, atmosphere became more urban, Um, I just started realizing I was missing my relation with food and with the land felt super disconnected. I felt like I had been almost like mishandling ceremony around food um, in the sense that, you know, you're just eating out a lot in urban environments. You're using more plastic. uh, You're throwing out a lot, a lot of like leftover, like quote unquote waste. And I just felt like I wanted to navigate this more. Um, So when I started my undergrad at the University of Toronto, you kind of had to pick a major. And I always felt that was really odd. You had to pick like this one very specific thing to hone in on. And I was kind of struggling and I stumbled across, um, you could do like a food inequity minor. And I thought food inequity, that's kind of interesting. And kind of stumbled into that world where I read this paper and it was about salmon and this team of researchers that did like a team of biologists. And they did this research study on salmon bone burial out in um, like so-called California with some of the First Nation or the indigenous communities there and how the bone burial was kind of translating to climate change being mitigated in certain parts of the ocean over there. And so just kind of coupling with kind of growing up in this beautiful natural environment that I miss dearly living in an urban environment still, it just caused me to reflect on the lack of relation that I was having. And so in my undergrad, when I was reading these papers, I just kind of felt like this is what I have to try to navigate. How do I reconcile my 
who I am and who I feel I should be around food with a person that lives in an urban environment? And how can I, as somebody that wasn't raised in my indigenous culture, how can I reconcile and relearn my indigenous biocultural heritage, which is like indigenous knowledge about the land? How can I kind of reconcile that as well? How can I relearn my own identity and who I am. So that kind of growing up experience led to this kind of exploratory journey, I guess, of, of reclaiming my Indigenous identity. And and by trade, you just are reconnected back with the land. So the environment is just, it just comes with relearning that identity. You can't not relearn about the environment as well. So let's get into that. As an Indigenous person, what is your relationship with food? What can you tell me about the Windat culture around food and how it relates to the land you live on? It's interesting because, so I'm here on Wendat, which is um, Wendake First Nation in Quebec, but I didn't grow up there. I wasn't grown up on that reserve. I didn't even have close Indigenous familial ties that did still live there either. Um, And I think it really just speaks to the histories and kind of violence of colonization um, as they strip people and Indigenous people from their like natural original lands um, and kind of displaced us. It also displaced paperwork and and our ability to in a more colonized, a.k.a. like organized ish way track our ancestry. So relearning this identity was really um, interesting. And I think it speaks to a lot of urban Indigenous people's hard time and experiences kind of living in these environments that aren't of, say, the reserve in which maybe our paperwork might be, or which like the title of our Indigenous identity might be. It makes it a really complicated answer because I wouldn't say necessarily that my practices or my relearning is specifically when that as much as I would love to, it is my identity. It's so much more of like an indigenous, like melting pot of an algamation of the land that I live on now, which is the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Swaletooth peoples here in so-called uh, British Columbia. Um, but growing up, like I mentioned, on all the other territories, I would say my practices and my relationship with the land is like an algorithmization of, if that's even a word, of all three. So it is interesting because, you know, these settler colonial institutions that you do research under or you kind of live through with the government, they really require this like singular answer. I am this one thing. And that is tricky because I wouldn't say, I don't feel I could say specifically when that teachings inform my relationship with the land. Although as I relearn my identity, um, just through connecting back with my Indigenous ancestry, reconnecting back with Indigenous family members, and just from what you can find on the internet, I kind of always joke that for Indigenous people that are disconnected from their land, Google is your elder because you're just really trying to navigate it as much as you can about your culture through the internet these days, especially when COVID hit, you can't just go to the community and ask questions. So the answer is a tricky one. And I would say that from what I've learned about my Wendat ancestry is really attached to looking at the land in more of like a cyclical relational way. There's this really beautiful, um, Wendat book by George Siu. He's a Wendat author from, he's Native American, but you know, these teachings kind of, they're not stuck to one spot, Um, but it's called The Sacred Circle. And he, in this book, just really speaks to how we are all in relation with one another in the land as humans in a more like cyclical understanding versus colonization really, I think, prioritizes linear or hierarchy models of engaging with one another and the land and animals and everything that inhabits that. In this Wendat teaching, while it is more attached to like the so-called Americas, he does speak a lot just to this cyclical, harmonious approach to viewing everyone. Because if you're in a cyclical relation with anyone, there's you absolutely cannot have an extractive or hierarchy of domination form. It's impossible in a circle. So that's something that always stuck with me, I think, growing up 
in the woods with these like incredible berry bushes and animals around that also is just wildly clear as a teaching, even from my non-indigenous family members. I'm also mixed. I'm half German, half German Irish. Um, And also in German culture, there is just such an appreciation for the land and just really respecting it and not disrupting what's going on. So I would say in the longest answer ever to your question, it's a mixed bag for urban Indigenous peoples, but it's definitely important to bring up. And my teachings about the land are just so rooted in my mixed ancestry from my German grandmother and my grandfather teaching me about the land and from my Indigenous kind of reclamation of my own culture. I would say I've been very grateful to learn a lot from the people from out here in British Columbia My auntie is Mi'kmaq, but happens to live on Vancouver Island, which is Lekwuggen territory. So we're kind of all just learning from one another, where there's like a steady heartbeat attached to Wendat teachings. I would say most of everything that I do now is just informed by the kind of mixed bag of Indigenous peoples that are in my circle now. One thing that you mentioned that really stuck out to me was when you were talking about uh, cyclical, things being in a circle versus linear. And that's something that I don't think I've ever perceived before. It's very interesting. I, you know, we've had people on the show to talk about food systems and and food waste and, and, and things like that before, but, and we, t- and talk about animal agriculture and all these things. And, and you're right. I think we think of things, especially from a Western perspective in this linear, everything builds off of the other. And, and instead of looking to each other and having that circular uh, culture, it's very interesting. Uh, I, I do want to ask about indigenous food sovereignty. This may be a new concept to some listeners to the podcast, Can you explain what this is from a policy approach and then the underlying issues impacting Indigenous peoples and their ability to respond to their own food needs? Yeah, I mean, the cyclical thing is very interesting. I think given the platform this podcast is on, I would assume gets a lot of like vegan listeners and animal lovers, but also you're going to get a mixed bag of kind of more um, settler colonial means of connecting with the land, which is like these farmers and more agro technology based approaches which they just, they can't avoid operating in this linear fashion because, you know, capitalism and colonization are inherently interwoven in their models. You could have the best good intentioned allies, a part of these models, but the model itself is rooted in extraction from the histories of colonization and farmers. So it wouldn't be a teaching, but it is really interesting to think about how indigenous knowledge systems like Indigenous biocultural heritage, which again is knowledge about the land and sacred medicines and crops and livestock, how it can kind of work in parallel to more settler colonial means of thinking or Western modes of thinking. I think a lot of the times when I bring up Indigenous teachings, such as those rooted in Indigenous food sovereignty, people try to just take it and run with it. So they'll they'll take the sacred circle thing and go back to their, you know, agrotechnology company and say like we need to we need to adopt this. We need to take in on this. And I think it's just a reminder that we really need diversity in knowledge, especially when it comes to things about the land, food, everything. We're really not okay with like diversity or disagreement in this space, and we really need to just be in parallel with one another and operate in an okay for disagreement. There's a, a scholar, Deborah McGregor, an indigenous scholar, and she talks a lot about the Tura Wampum as a, um, it's an Iroquois teaching, but it just teaches like models of coexisting. So I bring that up because with any teaching like the ones I'll talk about with Indigenous food sovereignty, I think that non-Indigenous bodies, even like really amazing allies or settlers, um, when it comes to the environment, people just kind of take Indigenous teachings and run with them. And it is just a reminder that we are allowed to think differently and work together in ways that aren't interweaving us constantly. Indigenous people can't weave in settler colonial systems without, you know, violence or um, extraction forming. So I just say that as a caveat, because um, I think I see a lot of times Indigenous people speaking in these public forums about their teachings and them getting totally extrapolated in horrifying ways. But Indigenous food sovereignty is really interesting because it's there's this amazing collective out here on the uh, BC coast that I'm a part of 
And the founder and curator, her name is Dawn Morrison, and it's the working group on Indigenous food sovereignty. And one of the things she speaks so um, deeply about is how Indigenous food sovereignty is policy driven by practice. And what that means is that us as Indigenous peoples, we're not kind of sitting away from the issues and speaking about them from this kind of linear fashion. We are doing work on the land and it's our practice and our community work that leads us to advocate for practice. So Indigenous food sovereignty is really just a concept or term that just speaks to the underlying issues barriers or yeah, just general issues around Indigenous peoples having access to practice and receive healthy, culturally adapted foods. So food sovereignty to any culture or any person or any body is really just having access and the ability to your healthy, culturally adapted foods. So from an Indigenous perspective, when we think about how this is connected by policy, reminding ourselves that Indigenous food sovereignty is very much so rooted in practice-driven policy. It means and addresses in a very explicit way that colonization is extractive. As we've mentioned, it's a hierarchy model of dominance. And so what we see right now for Indigenous peoples is uh, we don't see land back. We don't see treaty rights honored. We don't see Indigenous laws being honored in the settler colonial states or institutions, which, again, this isn't shocking because they're different systems, but they don't try to just be different and work. If It's as if you can't understand Indigenous law, so that means that it's wrong or it doesn't work. And so it really means that for Indigenous peoples to have Indigenous food sovereignty, to have access to healthy, culturally safe foods. Sadly for us, because of colonization, that will never happen unless policy is changed because land's been taken, because treaty rights are unhonored, because Indigenous laws don't really have space to be honored and upheld um, in so-called Canada, like is judicial system. Until these things change and policy can be advocated for and uplifted for to change these things, we will never ever see, in my personal opinion, truly like food sovereign people. It's it's really just Indigenous food sovereignty is just absolutely incredibly connected to environmental conservation, policy reform in forestry, fisheries, agriculture, and rural and community development doesn't always have to be policy super connected to like environmental based means. I mean, we think of the crises that are occurring on reserves across so-called Canada. We still in 2022 don't see clean drinking water. We still in 2022 don't see adequate housing. We see infrastructures that are degrading and falling apart. We still don't see like safety. We still don't see um, Indigenous peoples being rewarded through financial compensation or just through like knowledge, sovereignty of being stewards of the land. So we still see hunters going in and hunting and Indigenous peoples protective means of hunting um, are dishonored. So it's a it's a sticky question. It's a complicated question, but that's what Indigenous food sovereignty means. And it is so interwoven with policy because our biocultural heritage, our indigenous knowledge systems are inextricably attached to the land. They are a part of it. And so if we don't have access to our land, we don't have rights that are honored for us to grow, hunt, and fish in appropriate ways on the land. Of course, we don't have indigenous food sovereignty. So by it being as a means you know, policy driven by practice, it means that we are still on the land hearing from community. What are the issues on reserves, housing, clean water? Uh, what are the issues for our fishers and our, you know, our hunters? And it means taking that collective voice in a way that avoids pan-indigenizing, but really just taking the collective and then through that voice, mobilizing it to policy in practice on the land leads us to policy so that we can practice indigenous food sovereignty in a way that's accessible and barrier free for, you know, the seven generations to come.
You you touched on it at the end there, but uh, when you were talking about steward of the land, I think that's something that again, from a Western perspective, we we're oblivious to the fact that it's one thing to say, and this is similar similar arguments in the United States to uh, where I'm from, is um, the whole. Uh, racist concept of pick yourself up from your bootstraps. There, there are no means they've been removed. And you say steward of the land. If you don't have the means, you can't have your own sovereignty. If you don't have access and the resources and the means to your own land, then it's, it's removed from you. And I think that's something, again, because of the system that we're set up, as you explained, puts everything else in a shadow and it, and, and moves it away from the spotlight so that it just exists in its own, these, these, problems, these crises, they exist in their own bubble that are unseen to the general public. And and it's propped up by the policies that are created that way. I want to ask you about food waste or uh, another term for that, food cycling. What does the concept of food waste mean from an indigenous, indigenous perspective? Because I understand how I perceive it might be much different from how you might. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just as somebody that um, is a part of Indigenous food sovereignty movements, I think one of the biggest things I had and is any connection to the stories I just told as somebody reclaiming culture and, you know, Google as your elder uh, for urban Indigenous peoples just trying to reconnect with the land is that our Indigenous knowledges are very inaccessible to Indigenous peoples a lot of the time. And when I was trying to just reclaim my Wendat Indigenous biocultural heritage, when I was trying to relearn my own stories and teachings and protocols with the land around the handling of food, or I don't know if I like that word, but, you know, about reacquiring in relation with the food, Waste was something that I just felt really disturbed by. I'm sure everyone that lives in cities feels this. You just see it in restaurants and in grocery stores and in condos. And we also see it through the kind of hilarious waste infrastructure systems that are set up in place. I mean, they're all essentially behavioral nudges. You are prompted with a choice as a human to recycle or you know, throw things out. But in reality, they're the same bag underneath, you know, the lid. So we're kind of living in this, I think, and we, again, I want to be careful about saying we, I would say the majority of the public is living in a bit of a fallacy when it comes to waste. And I think truly reclaiming relations with food through the ways of being just really perceptive and observant around what you're doing with leftover foods is actually something from an individual standpoint is really obtainable for people. I think for myself, when I was trying to relearn and rethink, and I was observing these patterns, I just thought to myself, you know, like a hundred percent, there's a teaching that will help me here. There's a Wendat teaching that will give me guidance on how I should be handling my food. Given that I am living in a condo and in an apartment, what can I be doing here? And that was when I stumbled on these papers about bone burial. And none of these papers were written about Indigenous people. We weren't in the, the seat of autonomy. We weren't leading the discussion but there was a discussion. There was a space for Indigenous knowledge that specifically tackled this, this epidemic, this um, non-relational, really violent handling of food. Humans, and I would say especially more non-Indigenous cultures, or more I'd say white settler non-Indigenous cultures here, we've lost just the harmony with food. And so I was chatting about it with just some Indigenous friends and peers of mine. And I was just kind of asking, you know, is there a word in, in your community for waste? Because I'm trying to relearn my Wendat language and I'm not seeing a word for waste. I'm trying to find it and I can't. And of course I can't. There would be no word for waste because in Indigenous knowledge systems, there's that is no such thing. There is no waste. And so I thought food cycle kind of off of this teaching from George C.U. of Sacred Circle just felt really powerful. It's not food waste, it's food cycling. But to be cautious here, it's not that food cycling replaces food waste. Um, it kind of goes back to what I was just saying about different models existing in the one room. 
you know, the industrial food system we operate in here in so-called North America, it's a system of colonialism. It's a settler colonial system. So as a system that is colonial, it obviously is favoring tactics of hierarchy, of domination, of extractivism, of oppression, of inequality. It is in its blood. It can't not act like that. Even if you have good intention to people within these systems, it's just by trade of the system itself. You can't crash the machine. You can direct the machine into a different direction. Food waste then is going to be an issue that's obviously extended off of such a system. Um, it doesn't value food. It doesn't view food as a friend. It doesn't view food as a kin. It doesn't view salmon or herring or trout as a life source worthy of honor. It's a settler colonial system. So I think right now people are really wanting to correct and mend the food waste epidemic. You can't. It's rooted in a system of colonization. What you can do is decolonize your mind and decolonize the system. And so food waste as an issue is quite obvious. Solutions that stem off of that issue just perpetrate existing inequalities because, again, it's just colonial expansion. It's just like a domino. Food cycling is in parallel. I'm not saying that people within food waste sectors can't refer to food cycling. 100% you can and you should. Um, as you aim to decolonize your mind, food cycling off the tongue informs an action with food that's more cyclical. So food cycling is really indigenism. Before colonization, we practiced food cycling. So it's indigenism in practice. It's an affirmation of indigenous law or sacred law, natural law. Because in our language and in our teachings, and one of my mentors, a Cree mentor, Tabitha Robin, always reminds me, you know, our laws told us not to waste. Colonization came, it slaughtered, it left, it burned, it disrupted, and it broke our natural law. And in our natural laws, it says we don't waste. And so food cycling, just as a reminder to the listener, it's indigenism. It's the reinstatement of indigenous natural law because we are reclaiming back our practices that operate away from food waste. Um, and because of that, it's an indigenous knowledge system and practice and teaching that I just don't feel right now in today's time can safely weave, which is a popular word these days, or safely be learnt in settler colonial spaces, such as the industrial food system. It can, however, be a really amazing teaching and something to reflect on for non-Indigenous people as they aim to decolonize their work and their mind. Food cycling is what is before and after consumption. So I recently did my fieldwork in Kitasu Heihei First Nation, which is a First Nation community on the central coast of the Great Bear Rainforest. They're kind of the heart of the Great Bear Rainforest here in Canada. And there was tons of teachings around herring in that community. And so before the herring is fished, there is what I say intentional honor. So whether through the honoring of a sacred medicine a song, a dance, a ceremony. There's an understanding that the earth is about to give us something quite selflessly. There's a sacrifice that needs to be respected and intentionally honored. When it's fished, it's then consumed. So there's a pause in this kind of food cycle. The cycle then picks up with what I call intentional repurpose, which is whatever's not consumed versus I guess, um, landfilled or composting, which doesn't always have the best outcome in urban environments specifically. People out attached to the land have a way better means of composting than we do here. Intentional repurpose is what wasn't consumed? How can we honor that now? So there's nothing wrong with composting. People really love that as a solution to food waste. But what can't be composted? What are you doing with that then? There still is a repurposing, an intentional repurposing that has to occur. And so whether it's the skin or the bones, they might be tossed into the ocean, reburied in the ground. Eggs might be harvested. 
used for paint more traditionally back more historically than they would be now. When I think of, you know, salmon, I think of similar teachings, how what's after consumed, they might be smoked or dried or preserved for future use. Brain is another really interesting one to think of with food cycling or brain tanning in indigenous culture. So what happens with the brain in all these butcher shops? 100% it's getting tossed away. That just felt so just depressing. The brain is such like a mecca of our power. Same for animals. They interpret, they hear, they think. And then for that brain to just be composted, I feel like is still not adequate. It's not honoring enough. In indigenous cultures, there's brain tanning. So we'll, you know, through ceremony, honor the brain, mash that up, and it might be slicked back on the side of a hide or fur or whatever was transformed or intentionally repurposed into say a coat or moccasins, the brain actually acts as a preservative and keeps it intact um, while kind of also killing off any like bacteria. So if you, as of right now, any indigenous families, if they have any of their old regalia or present day regalia, if colonization hasn't disrupted too much of, of that kind of, Um, means of archiving, there would be brain dried and tanned on either side of that. So huge answer. I think in some it's, I want to be careful when I talk about food cycling because it is indigenous knowledge and it is an affirmation and reinstatement of indigenous law. And so it doesn't mean non-indigenous people can't listen to the stories I just told and go do that. That's not for me to say that's up to the first nation whose land you're on and whose community you're with. But I don't think given, you know, the fact that we still don't have reckoning or or proper accreditation from the residential school system, the fact that we still have communities that don't have clean drinking water, I don't think the time is for non-Indigenous people to be taking more knowledge. But I think that the stories I told can be really amazing spaces of reflection for people working in the settler colonial industrial food system. How can we decolonize practice? How can we honor perhaps more of the food in a cyclical way? And how can we um, as individuals decolonize our mind? So maybe when we go buy fish, maybe perhaps we opt away from grocery stores. We try to enter in relation with, you know, a fishery or something. How can we reclaim those spaces? And for Indigenous peoples, food cycling is us taking back what was already ours. And it's about addressing the barriers that are in place for us to even begin to practice these. Because colonization forced us to be reliant on a settler colonial food system. It forced Indigenous peoples into wasting. And so food cycling is us kind of assessing how can we reinstate these practices again on our land and how can we incorporate them into our own governance and laws around waste on reserves and and in these urban environments. And I think I'll kind of conclude this super long answer with just saying that, you know, there's a lot of people that hear food cycling and they say, you know, That sounds like upcycling, a huge term in the food waste movement right now of companies taking food waste, repurposing it into something else. That sounds awfully similar to what I just said. So I do want to remind people that there's two things happening here. There's a settler colonial industrial food system that favors waste, will always have waste. And all the solutions that stem from it, such as upcycling and other technological food waste solutions, or not that they're not doing good, not that they're not addressing it. It's just that it still is operating within settler colonial institutions and spaces. One system. The second system in parallel is Indigenous knowledge. Food cycling is Indigenous knowledge. And right now, Indigenous peoples including myself, are interested in what barriers are in place that are stopping us from reclaiming back these practices. So there's two things happening, an indigenous knowledge system and a settler colonial industrial food system. And food waste is this, I guess, kind of catalyst or thing in the middle that I am connecting it to. But just to conclude with that weariness, you know, there's going to be similarities and differences, but right now for the safety of indigenous knowledge systems, these stories are to be learned from and operate away from settler colonial solutions and issues and et cetera.
Well, and it's interesting too that you mentioned upcycling toward the end there, that as we get closer and closer to a bigger climate crisis, and we realize that the systems that are in place, the colonial systems that are in place that create so much waste, as you said, we're forced into wasting. People are trying to shift and make changes that might help mitigate some of those problems down the road. But these things, as you described, they already existed. They've existed forever. Um, and and we're just slapping a new label on them and calling them something else. But I mean, it, again, and again, I think going back to the food systems themselves, you know, like we have monocropping now and that a huge swath of Canada, uh, so-called Canada and the United States, it's just, it's just corn. Whereas I know, and this is just scratching the surface of what I know, but I know that uh, many indigenous cultures practice polycropping so that it could create more biodiversity with insects and plants and so on and so forth. And some of the interplay between the different species of plants actually helped produce more yield and so on and so forth. But yeah, it does, when taking a step back, it does seem like these things were already there and practiced by indigenous cultures. And then as we near the climate crisis and uh, are actually in trouble, then it seems that they go back and, oh, look at this new thing that we've created, upcycling or whatever. Talk to me about food insecurity in indigenous cultures. What are the challenges First Nations are facing when it comes to food accessibility? And what are the systems in place, as you've already mentioned, some of which uh, that create obstacles? Yeah, I think polyculture, again, it's such a good example, because it's, you know, as the climate crisis continues, it'll always continue. I think everyone just kind of is like grasping at straws here. And really, um, I know that Indigenous knowledges have been, you know, wanting to be connected with for some time. I'm not saying it's like a new thing that's happening here. But in my own words and experience, it does feel like, whoa, there's been a shift. And now Indigenous peoples are being just bombarded and burdened with giving answers to things that they've <laughs> we've been saying for a very long time. So people kind of get to the end of their rope until they try to address Indigenous knowledges, but they always try to, again, yeah, like mimic it or replicate it or weave it into a settler colonial system Instead of just honoring, perhaps, how can we fund, decolonize, lower barriers for Indigenous systems to exist? And then at some point in the future, perhaps there can be a more kind of direct partnership. But again, we still don't have clean drinking water. We still don't have Indigenous peoples act accessing knowledge sovereignty. So it just feels like this more futuristic hope that we're all going to come together for this one mega solution that's just not going to happen right now. I don't think, I think that we need to just honor different systems of knowing and existing and address the space that um, white settlers, allies, non-Indigenous bodies, like what space are you taking up and how can you lower barriers and decolonize your mind through the teachings of food cycling. And for sure in your land and in your farming, you want to do polyculture, go for it. Great. But are you also addressing like land back? Are you also addressing perhaps a barrier that you're putting up in place? So there's lots of like complicated nuance and it sounds like perhaps a bit cynical at times. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people say to me, you know, if I'm doing this, at least it's better than nothing. Or if I'm doing this, at least it's better than the guy that's not. And that is all true. And that is all good. And that is all dandy. But we have so much to learn as humans, myself included. There's so much more decolonization and unraveling that needs to occur. I don't think it's super cynical to say that the work never stops. Decolonizing never stops. It's just so rampant here in so-called Canada. I even myself as an Indigenous person am, have to be wildly aware of when I'm speaking in a very colonized way with community members as somebody that wasn't raised in my culture that um, has been trained in settler colonial systems. There's just always work to be done. And food insecurity is something that has always been a bit of a, um, I don't want to say triggering, but I get really like heated around the topic. And I think it's because, again, it's one of those things. The settler colonial industrial food system, huge mouthful, but we have to be explicit. It's a system of colonialism. Obviously then, just like food waste, there's going to be food inequality and food issues. That's so obvious. No, like we know this. My problem with it is that food insecurity and food security 
is something that's been talked about for a very long time now. I remember first learning the term in my undergrad and it makes sense and it definitely adds up as a system of colonization. It's another colonial expanded issue. And who does it impact most? Of course, those who are oppressed. Of course, those who are marginalized, underserved communities, I, BIPOC, people of different sexual orientation and gender identification. Of course, it impacts those people the most. And when I thought about, you know, my work and how it relates to Indigenous food sovereignty, and when we think of Indigenous food sovereignty being shaped by policy, uh, practice driven by policy, food insecurity naturally then is a topic that pops up. Because like I was mentioning before, um, food cycling is not accessible in every community. It's not practiced. Some, in some communities, it's being practiced quite heavily. I know out here on the West Coast, there's a lot of um, food cycling being done with like shellfish and, and shells um, and regalia. And it's, it, and it's very accessibly practiced. That's not the truth for every First Nation community. So food insecurity always comes up when the topic of inaccessibility of knowledge comes up. So for my fieldwork in this community, they are always called geographically remote. And that always bothered me because, well, remote to the infrastructures that colonization's created, not remote to their ways of knowing and, and, you know, the other communities that exist in the Great Bear Rainforest. And as this community is farther away from the stellar colonial infrastructures that have been created around food, they have a harder time than somebody more connected to the mainland towards accessing food, obviously. So when people think of a solution to food insecurity for Indigenous peoples on reserve, off reserve, um, or I think I should more appropriate say in and out of community, I want to be careful about that, about saying in and out of reserve. As a colonial enforced institution, there's a system that's a tricky sentence to say. So I'll correct myself and say more in and out of community. The solution to food insecurity is always food surplus. So always just get more food there. And so that always leads to a greenhouse or a growing of seeds and and fruits and vegetables. Um, nine out of 10 times, it's probably an outside agrotechnology organization or an outside ally food system organization that comes in partnership with the First Nation community to address food insecurity. So the way I like to break this down is if the settler colonial industrial food system creates the issues we have, it has created food insecurity and it's created the language that we use. So when you say insecure, where is the power dynamic in that word? Or where is the oppression and colonial violence in that word? How does it acknowledge that? How is it explicit? It's not. It kind of takes the onus and responsibility off of the settler colonial industrial food system. Oh, we acknowledge you're quote unquote vulnerable. We acknowledge you're insecure. We're going to help you now. We're going to make you secure. If we think back to the story about food waste I just gave, colonial violence disrupted indigenous food systems and knowledges causing us to waste. It forced us to be reliant. How in present day 2022 is food insecurity doing anything different? To me, it's, again, just another tactic of colonization. Um, and a caveat here is there's a lot of really incredible greenhouse-oriented solutions to First Nation communities that are operating quite well when they're Indigenous-led and they're in collaboration and um, they perhaps uh, prioritize growing um, more traditional foods. That's all great. I de definitely don't want to knock things that are working. If an Indigenous community says it works, it's working, do it. You know, if the Indigenous community is saying they're okay with it, they're okay with it. Every community is different. My opinion will be different than another Indigenous person's. Um, and there's a lot of greenhouses that people love and a lot of really incredible models that I've witnessed even in the Great Bear Rainforest um, that are working. However, when we think of a brighter future, when we think of Indigenous futurism, I don't think sticking in crisis 
labels is what's going to actually disrupt a system. And so one of the words that when I was doing this field work that kept coming up was food insecurity. And I, I remember asking a couple of the friends I had made in community, how do, do you feel okay that so-and-so keeps saying that? Cause it's starting to bother me and I don't even live here. And, you know, they said they hate that word. It makes them feel powerless um, when they know what to do with the land. They know what to grow. They know what to do. They know what's inaccessible. They know what is accessible. And if somebody sat them down and just said, how can we empower you? How can we lead you in this process? I don't think the outcome would always be food surplus. How can it be better? Like, how can it be stronger? How can it actually impact policy? You know, I'm so sick of Band-Aid solutions. Like, let's get in there. Let's shape policy. Let's knock things around. Why are we being so safe as in allyship? Um, and one of the words that one of the community members used and in my thesis, I used as well. And I want to make sure like a proper accreditation goes to their words. And um, it was Two-Spirit uh, member, Ross Neese Loss. And they said, I really enjoy the word food reconciliation because it means that whatever um, solutions are here are ones that will at least reconcile with old traditional foods in a way that also allows us to culturally adapt to the foods of the now. And reconciliation is a horrible word. It allows for settler colonial systems to just maintain systems of oppression. Reconciliation doesn't do much as a word for sure. But again, if Indigenous peoples are reclaiming words and it empowers them, I think they're okay to use. And as of right now, it seems like that word empowered us um, as a group of friends, as Indigenous activists with food to be better and um, not necessarily be better, but advocate for ourselves in a better way than saying like, we're no longer food insecure. It was like, no, we're we're we want to be reconciled. We want to be food reconciled. And so when I think of communities that still have um, food access issues, which is now, right now in the present, I think it is because we keep viewing, we keep saying food insecurity off our tongue and language informs actions. That is just so wildly clear to me as a human being, you say something and that happens. If we keep saying food insecure, we're just going to keep having food insecure communities with the outcome as food surplus. If we can change and decolonize our language or reframe the language, what could be produced? I don't know. Is there a better word for food reconciliation? For sure, as reconciliation is a triggering word for a lot of Indigenous communities. But I think it does a better job at producing solutions that at least are decolonized. Um, and there's also, um, I believe he's Anishinaabek, um, indigenous scholar Gerald Vizin Vizinior, I think totally probably messing up his name, but he has a book um, where he loves using the word survivance. And I know that's also a word I've tried playing around with food survivant communities, because by saying survivant, while it's still as vulnerable, it at least is explicit to the fact that we're survivant. And we've adapted to colonization in a way that food insecurity just doesn't even remotely tackle. Um, there's also a really amazing podcast called Don't Call Me Resilient that I also loved because they explicitly break down the word resilient. If we keep calling Indigenous communities resilient, we're not drawing attention to the structures that are making them resilient in the first place. And we're doing little to none to break down the structures. So I think food insecurity, I reject it. I think I say when I think of food reconciliation and food survivant communities right now across so-called Canada, I think that Indigenous communities need to be leading the way. Um, and I think any food organization or food allyship that is doing work in food survivance with First Nation communities needs to be asking themselves, how can we ensure that we are addressing their barriers? How are we uplifting their knowledge systems? How are we ensuring that they're leading the charge? And how are we ensuring that we're preserving the knowledge that they're sharing? And how are we ensuring that our team is culturally trained to not misappropriate or mishandle these knowledges? 
ask yourself those questions, decolonize your language. And I think we'll begin to see um, more food sovereign and more autonomous First Nation communities in so-called Canada. That's a great point. And I'll make sure to to list some of these these authors that you just mentioned uh, in the show notes so, so listeners can find those. It's important to hear the terminology and the language that Indigenous authors themselves would prefer to have used. I want to, we, we touched on it a little bit um, about two questions ago, but I want to jump into the climate crisis. I, I know that our food choices, like you said before, are inextricably tied to the environment. How does the climate crisis factor into Indigenous communities' relationship to food? I think it's like the simplest answer. I mean, when the land goes, culture goes as well. I think as something that I've experienced here on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Swale-Tooth peoples is salmon is um, more uh, less predictable, herring is less predictable. And so as climate change does impact the land and impacts Indigenous communities' ability to have Indigenous food sovereignty and to culturally thrive, I think the climate crisis impacts our ways of knowing and our knowledge systems in ways that perhaps other more white settler communities just don't understand. The climate crisis impacts everybody. It, you know, all of us will be impacted as humans, regardless of race or color. Um, but for Indigenous peoples, our knowledge system will disintegrate. Indigenous biocultural heritage is an example of an Indigenous knowledge system. And it's a knowledge system that is led and informed by the land. And so, um, you know, I feel like this question gets asked a lot and I think people um, get the answer and then move forward. But I think um, climate change is going to continue from a global scale until the big companies, the big capitalist seller colonial companies of the world actually start to do something. Um, we can only do so much. But what can happen are these questions around knowledge appropriation and knowledge access so for indigenous communities whose knowledge is interwoven with the land, led and informed by the land, climate change continues and the land goes, where does that knowledge system go? So what are settlers and allies and non-indigenous bodies in these movements, in these environmental and food-based movements, what are you doing then to ensure that our knowledge is protected, preserved, and not inappropriately handled? Is it even accessible to the communities that you're working with? Are you... Um, gatekeeping knowledge? Are you exploiting knowledge? Are you cherry picking Indigenous knowledge to suit your environmental narrative and agenda? What are you doing with the knowledge that is existing right now? And I think that allies and non-Indigenous bodies that are in cross-cultural collaboration with Indigenous communities have an obligation to ask these questions. What are we doing to ensure the knowledge is safe? The forum that we're sharing the knowledge on is consented? And are we asking the Indigenous communities themselves, how can we ensure that this is preserved for you? How can we assist with that? I think by asking those questions and allowing the answers to be led and informed by the Indigenous communities you're working with, we might actually begin to see the climate crisis not impact us as de like desperately and as deeply as it is now. Though many cultures around the world have historically practiced uh, vegetarian diets, this concept of or the terminology of plant-based and vegan labels are newer trends. And for some indigenous communities, eating a plant-based diet can conflict both with ancestral dieting and accessibility. Can you speak to this issue? Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting one. I think that, I don't know if this is like totally hot topic, but I think that People in plant-based movements and in vegan-based movements, they think that such lifestyles are better for the environment. And I don't think it's as clean as that is. I think I always give the example of like almond milk and oat milk. First of all, it's a part of the settler colonial industrial food system. It's filled with oils and things that are bad for us. And from an environmental perspective, you know, while it might be a little bit better than factory farming in the dairy industry, I don't think it's that much better. So I think plant-based movements and vegan-based movements are awesome. And if they empower people to decolonize and address their lifestyles, then I think that they're meaningful movements to engage in. 
But I think they also need to ask themselves on the global scale of things or from a land-based perspective, is your perspective somewhat alienating and not taking into account cultures who since time immemorial have been um, in good relations with, with animals that involve eating them um, and hunting and fishing them. And I think if we can take it back to what I spoke to about intentional honor, these are means of hunting and fishing that honor the, the animals. There are creation stories since time immemorial that speak to fish and animals sacrificing themselves and giving themselves to us. And I, I just, I just believe that environmental movements need to focus less on don't eat this and don't do that. And back to the land, how can we restore the land? If you don't want to eat them, cool. You want to eat them. Awesome. I don't see either or doing a tremendous amount for reharmonizing the land back with humans that clean sentence there. I just don't see it doing a lot of harmony back with the land because I just have observed plant-based movements alienating and acting in you know, ways that are quite racist towards um, indigenous communities and other cultures that hunt as a part of who we are. Um, and so I think the question needs to become land restoration. So plant-based movements, I'm sure prioritize more like garden-based projects or reconnecting with the land back with perhaps eating seasonally and ancestrally with seeds and nuts and all of that stuff. So that's awesome. Focus on that. So how are we growing things? Where are we growing things? How can we restore the land that we're on? Soil remediation. How can we navigate those things? And how can we draw attention to, to the systems of colonization that are attacking animals? So factory farming horrifying, non-relational colonial violence. So focus on um, the systems of colonization that are disrupting animals and reharmonizing the land and supporting and trying to understand cultures that have a relation with animals since time immemorial that does involve their consumption and use and understanding that as it's rooted in intentional honor, um, these animals are engaged in relations with us that are far beyond hunting and consumption. There's so much incredible indigenous grassroots and activism around hunting and fishing right now. Immerse yourself in their narratives, like support, learn, because everything that indigenous peoples are doing are out of honor, love and respect for animals. And so I think in a conclusion to that, I think that plant-based movements and vegan movements are operating in a very like well-intentioned, meaningful heart of just really trying to protect animal welfare and trying to reclaim health and trying to reconnect with the land. And that's all because the food system is a system of colonialism it wants to deteriorate our bodies. It wants to harm animals. It wants to do these things. So keep that up. Keep up the movements. Keep them forward, but root them in a decolonization of the mind. Root them in a reharmony and restoration of the land. And do your best as you can as allies to be listeners and to um, engage and support Indigenous communities that already are up against massive systems of colonization that have generally impacted us and generationally impacted us since the beginnings of colonization and aim to support our narratives because I very strongly believe that a world where Indigenous peoples have access to our land and access to our ways of knowing in clear decolonized ways um, will reharmonize humans' relationship with animals in a way that I feel really aligns with the heart of the plant-based movement and the vegan movements. What we're all really trying to do here is just decolonize and detoxify our bodies and our minds away from what colonization has done to the land, to animals, and to our bodies. I think that's extremely important for listeners at home to consider. Uh, I think the message comes back to intent and perception of how you might perceive an animal. Uh, like you said, the the system that's set up now, what we do with the animals, they are an equation 
they are an X, Y, or Z in an equation that is only meant for it to be utilized. And as you said, indigenous cultures respect the animal and it's cyclical all comes back to that perception and that intent, which is vastly different between the two systems. Atlanta, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. You're extremely knowledgeable of indigenous food culture and also very eloquent. Um, I feel that I learned a lot from you um, because you're able to relay this information in a very accessible way and a way that's easy to understand. Before I let you go, uh, are there any grassroots groups or programs that you'd like to mention who are bringing attention to things like food sovereignty and food justice? Yeah, I think the one I mentioned earlier by founder curator Don Morrison, the working group on Indigenous food sovereignty is rooted here within so-called British Columbia, but it really is a global movement and really seeks to connect with other Indigenous food sovereignty movements from across the globe. And as a working group, there's so much uh, we lead here um, in regards to land restoration um, and a decolonization of, of the mind, body, and spirit. And I think the other thing I would mention to listeners is that settler colonial academic institutions are seeing more and more Indigenous researchers and knowledges um, being presented within the academy whether it's a safe space is a whole other conversation, but um, there's a lot of Indigenous scholarship around climate change, around the environment, around plant-based movements in ways that are way more familiar than I am. And I think that, you know, knowledge has always been a privilege. Knowledge has always been a power. Um, and to just read up on what the Indigenous voice is saying, stop hearing it through the voices of others, and so I would definitely want to highlight Kyle White. He's an incredible environmental and climate change-based Indigenous scholar that has inspired a lot of my work. Max Librian and their book, Pollution is Colonialism, while connects more to plastic and chemical waste pollution, just draws in a very powerfully explicit way is everything I just mentioned about, you know, are the systems around us being systems of colonialism. And to just really um, attend First Nation communities' forums, hear their voice, hear what they're saying, and do just that. And to be really cautious of pan-Indigenizing us and allow for the diversity of Indigenous knowledges to exist is something I think I want to conclude with. And that the goal here isn't cultural immersification or weaving and or 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 learning everything about another culture the goal here is of listening and of respect and of coexisting so you know animal movement plant-based movement agriculture indigenous food movements there's so much going on right now i think we just need to listen allow for coexisting and allow for a decolonization of the mind to occur and to just be really explicit and call things out and to uplift the Indigenous people around you. Are you taking up room when you shouldn't? Are you taking up a seat when you shouldn't? Are you teaching an issue that is not your own? Um, and to just remind ourselves that our heart and the heart work of people in the plant-based movements, in Indigenous food sovereignty movements, is all the same. We're all here because we see the destruction that's occurring and we meaningfully want to engage. Um, and so in order to do that, we all just need to listen, to decolonize, and to just uplift all of the marginalized and underdeserved voices that are around us right now and allow for diversity and allow for disagreement. And I think we'll start to begin to see slowly but surely uh, a rolling effect of change for our food system and for the local systems and the local knowledge systems that are all around us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. 
and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.